Hi, everyone. Sean Hayden here. If you're listening to Stage Combat, a mental health story for the first time, you're going to want to start with season one. Season two picks up just after the events of the last episode of season one. So start with episode one of season one. Welcome to the good speed. And I'll meet you over there. If you have listened to season one, fasten your seatbelts. And here we go with season two. You're listening to Stage Combat, a mental health story of what really happened behind the scenes at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, during its 2019 production of Billy Elliot, the musical. Stage Combat is a true story of the narrator's personal experience during his mental health journey from 2019 to 2023. This podcast contains actor portrayals of actual events. The names of the members of the cast of Billy Elliot have been changed. Stage Combat contains strong language and addresses mental illness. Check the show notes for more details. Haywood Productions LLC offered Goodspeed Musicals, Inc., and the Goodspeed Opera House Foundation, Inc., the opportunity to include a statement in each episode of Stage Combat, including an option to deny the events as depicted. They declined. Haywood Productions also offered Goodspeed's artistic director and managing director the opportunity to appear on this podcast to discuss the narrator's account of his experience at the Goodspeed Opera House. They both declined. So, where were you during the summer of 2019? Me? I had just landed a big leading role as an actor in Billy Elliot the Musical at one of the country's most prestigious theaters, the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut. And I was playing Billy's dad. Things were going great until I met Chad. He's not fucking sorry. A 25-year-old actor hired two weeks before rehearsals to play my 18-year-old son. Things started to go south after Chad knocked me down in a performance. And then he knocked the air out of me in a rehearsal the next day. I declared on the Goodspeed Opera House stage, I don't feel safe on stage with you. And when I asked for help from the stage manager, I got nothing but blank stares. Meanwhile, what I don't know is, Chad went to the general manager. Her name is Rachel Tischler. You don't want to receive a call. And Chad unleashed all kinds of heinous allegations against me. There's some things about Sean restraining orders. Sean Hayden called me a faggot. Yeah, it's been that bad at the Goodspeed. Because of those allegations, Goodspeed put me under an official we investigation. Have into investigation mode. Another something I know nothing about because I was never questioned. Rachel sent Chad an email saying, I hope you will continue to let me and Brad know if anything additional should occur, no matter how small. But then Rachel and the producer, Donna Lynn Hilton, This is very concerning. Discovered Chad was lying. It's disturbing to think that Chad would be untruthful about this. And what did they do then? They sent Chad right back on stage with me. Once I found out Chad 
had falsely accused me of an Chad assault. reported that you scratched his Chad face during a performance. On his face. I experienced a mental health crisis. Things were spiraling out of control, and I had my first panic attack and collapsed on the Goodspeed Opera House stage. Sean! It was one of the scariest moments of my life. There's one more thing you should know that I don't know about. The stage manager, Bradley G. Spockman, filed a show report the night of my panic attack. A kitchen coffee mug handle broke off And didn't off even tonight. mention that I collapsed. We'll put in a replacement What's tomorrow. up with that? The next day, I had a call with Rachel Tischler and Donalyn Hilton. But something about that call was strange because they didn't ask me once about my collapse or my health. But they did tell me- Sean, we know the things Chad is telling us are not factual. Confused? Welcome to the good speed. All I know right now is I'm expecting good speed to finally take action against Chad. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 1 of Stage Combat. Silence. It's Monday, September 30th, 2019. 36 hours after my collapse. My first panic attack. And I'm feeling really confused. Like, why do I still feel so emotionally beat up? And why do I also feel physically beat up? The cast has two days off, and I'm home with Ian. I'm trying to put my best foot forward. I have to, because the press opening for Billy Elliot, it's in 48 hours. So I emailed Donalyn Hilton and Rachel Tischler to thank them for the call we had the morning after my collapse. And I say I'm looking forward to the press opening. But there's no reply from either one of them. No break a leg, no hope you're feeling better. Huh. The next day is my third wedding anniversary with Ian, but there's not much of a celebration because I'm still feeling really fragile. I make an appointment with a massage therapist, hoping that might help. After my session ends, the therapist says, Are you doing okay? You were gripping the table the entire time. Later that night, I drive back to East Haddam, past the dollar store, past the Dunkin' Donuts. I drive across the swing bridge and see the opera house lit up in the night sky. It's staring at me again. It's saying, oh, you came back for more? The next day, it's Wednesday, October 2nd. One week since Rachel and Donna Lynn discovered Chad invented a false history about me. And at 12 noon, Donna Lynn and Rachel are now finally meeting with Chad. But something mysterious happens in this meeting. Rachel isn't writing the pages of copious notes like she usually does. In fact, 
she doesn't write one note about Chad on her legal pad. She only writes one line. Continued doubt about S.H.'s truthfulness. I'm S.H. In a meeting that is supposed to be about Chad's lies. After the meeting, Donna Lynn and Rachel send Chad back to work on the Goodspeed stage. That afternoon, I walk into my dressing room for the Wednesday matinee. Aaron and Kevin are there, the guys who put their hands on my shoulder just after my collapse. But today, neither one of them is talking to me. And as I walk around backstage, there is decidedly a chill in the air. Holy shit. Hardly anyone is talking to me. And I don't know why. But I can't deal with that right now. Because a few hours later, it's press night. The night when all the Connecticut theater critics come to review Billy Elliot. The one performance that everyone will write about. As I stand backstage, waiting for the show to begin, I can hear the chatter of the audience. And I feel my emotions rising. I realize I have a big problem. If I access those emotions, I feel like I might have another panic attack. But if I don't access my emotions, I won't be able to perform the role on this of all nights. Yeah, so much for my vulnerability being my strength. This is your place's call. A reminder, there is a reception at the Gelston house after the show. The lights dim and the curtain goes up. Welcome, citizens of Easton. My dizziness comes and goes, as well as the fear I will collapse again. I have to push all of that out of my mind because as I reach act two, Ahead of me are Dad's big emotional moments. It's time to pull out all the stops. The first, a breakdown, as Dad sings a song at a Christmas party about his deceased wife who he recently buried. I know how to navigate this song. I know it inside and out. It was my callback audition song that booked me the role. I get to the point of the song where Dad is overcome with grief and cannot continue. I hesitate because I'm not feeling anything. How do I perform this scene? I find myself staring into a Christmas light that's decorating the balcony. The simplistic beauty of a single Christmas light. I let myself absorb that light. And as I do, I think about all these people at the good speed and all that has happened. My vulnerability is my strength. And I can't let anyone take that away from me. I dive deep into myself and summon up all the pain the good speed is causing me. And it throws me into the world of dad's pain. And I perform Dad's breakdown. As I hurl myself 
into dad's emotional journey, I become aware that someone in the audience is sobbing. A woman crying. I hear you. There's a communal feeling in the opera house. I'm aware that I'm telling the story that I'm supposed to tell. And the audience is receiving it. And there's a beauty in us being in sync together. And what is a moment that will never be duplicated? I'm reminded that as actors, this is why we do this. After the show, there's a small reception at the Gelston House Bar across the street from the Opera House. For good luck, I put on the suit I got married in and walk over. For a moment, I stand just outside the Gelston House door. I take a deep breath and walk in. Paul Hart, the New York casting director who casts Goodspeed shows, he's holding court at the end of the bar. He's called me in for auditions over the past 20 years. He's saying things like, Sean from when I saw his Cole Porter show. I know Katie when she was in, what was the name of that show? And so on. In the middle of the room are Gabriel Berry and Donalyn Hilton. I walk up with my drink. I put on that awkward smile you put on at a party when you're just standing there and no one is really engaging with you. Because there are no congratulations from Gabriel Berry and Donna Lynn. And there's no, how are you feeling? And I just don't understand why. Just prior to the show, Gabriel Berry stuck his head in my dressing room and said, I love you, Shawnee. No one calls me Shawnee in real life, but I replied back, I love you more. But standing here in front of Donna Lynn, he doesn't seem to have much to say to me. Suddenly, Barry looks at me and says, I'm going to get another drink. Do you want one? That's nice, I think. Uh, yeah, thanks. A white wine, please? And he heads towards the bar. Donna Lynn ignores me and moves on to someone else. I wait a while and stare around the room at no one in particular. When Gabriel Barry comes back, he's forgotten my drink. The next day, I'm still expecting management to take some kind of action against Chad. Meanwhile, I fear further retaliation by him, and I wonder what will he come up with next. I mean, where do you go after a fabricated assault claim? I'm not going to give him the opportunity. So I don't interact with him at all offstage. I don't speak to him during fight call. I just professionally perform the fight moves, smile, and quietly leave. And because good speed requires me to exit with Chad alone after a musical number through an empty stairwell, I always wait at the top of the stairs. I turn, face the wall, 
and wait for Chad to move down an exit so he can't fabricate something happening in the stairwell. That's the fear I'm living with here at the Opera House. Back on stage, just one day after Goodspeed finally met with Chad, he starts screaming his lines at me again. The hostility is alarming. In one performance, he yells, Come on! So ferociously at me that I stumble backwards. It takes me completely out of the scene. I'm now supposed to punch Tony in the face, throw a chair across the stage into the wings, and yell to Billy that his mom is dead. You just don't pull that out of your ass. I email Bradley G. Spockman twice to let him know Chad is screaming at me again, that this is not the way the director directed the scenes, and it's affecting the way I have to play the role of dad. Finally, on Sunday, Bradley G. Spockman gives Chad a written note about the screaming. When I come back from the dinner break between shows, Chad's note is now on my dressing room table, folded up into a tiny little square. I don't know what it means, but I do know Chad has been in my dressing room. Why would he be in here? I hope you will continue to let me and Brad know if anything additional should occur, no matter how small. I find Bradley G. Spockman standing on the stage. I calmly tell him what happened and ask if he can keep Chad out of my dressing room. He looks at me and says, Try not to think anything about it. I want to assume the positive. My brain starts processing that if good speed won't even take the simplest of actions to just keep Chad out of my own personal space, I am doomed. My mental health is going to continue to unravel. As I start the evening performance, I'm suddenly lightheaded. I'm having trouble catching my breath. Welcome to your second panic attack at the good speed. You might be experiencing trouble walking down hallways, opening and closing doors, going up and down stairs, changing into your costumes. Oh, did I mention you might just collapse again. Enjoy your performance. In between my scenes, I sit in my dressing room and I'm bent over with a wet towel around my neck. Aaron and Kevin, they're in the room too. But they act like I'm not even there. They're just laughing, having a really funny conversation. It's like there's some code of silence at the good speed about my panic. And I don't understand why. After the curtain, I call Ian from my dressing room. And the sound of his voice... All right, can you drive? It grounds me. Okay, all right, just get home safe. And once I feel like I'm able to, I get in my car and I drive away from that opera house to my home 
I feel my symptoms lifting. And I'm feeling defeated that I had another attack. Back in New York City, my symptoms continue to get worse. I'm having a lot of trouble breathing. And my husband asked me to please go see a doctor. I walk into an urgent care facility on West 57th Street. How may I help you? Lying back on an examination table, I tell the doctor about my symptoms, my panic attack, my dizziness, and my breathing. She looks at me with some concern and starts wheeling over some equipment. The doctor's assistant starts pulling out electrodes. I ask, what are you doing? Mr. Hayden, I want to check your heart. I want to run an EKG. Haywood Productions offered The Goodspeed the opportunity to include a statement within this episode. The Goodspeed declined. Goodspeed's artistic director and managing director declined an invitation to appear on this podcast to discuss the narrator's account of his experience at the Goodspeed Opera House. Coming up on the next episode of Stage Combat, a mental health story. Since then, Chad's been surveilling me, eavesdropping on conversations, looking for something, anything that might stick. Rachel picks up her pen, ready to take dictation. Even though two weeks ago, she caught the man sitting in front of her, lying about racial slurs, lying about restraining orders. And now he's back. Rachel, I've got more stuff to tell you. Um, I'm not sure why Rachel Tischler called me or what was the purpose of the call. Why would she call you? She, she has my number. I've been sitting here all day within walking distance of her office. Oh, shit. And then I realize what is going on. I hang up and call Ian. Ian, I think they're trying to build a file against me. I think they're trying to get rid of the guy with the panic attacks. Stay tuned for a post-show talkback with Sean and his guest, psychologist Dr. Elisa Hurwitz. Silence in response to somebody having, somebody suffering, somebody having a mental health crisis, re-traumatizes the person, re-harms the person, because when you have had harm by another person, the kind of silence that minimizes or denies that harm is going over that same wound. It's a human not recognizing the human on the other side. That's coming up now. Hi, everyone. This is Sean Hayden. Welcome to our post-show talkback. And we are so lucky to have with us to kick off season two, a familiar voice to stage combat, Dr. Elisa Hurwitz. Welcome to season two, Dr. Hurwitz. Thank you, Sean. Happy to be here. This episode, Dr. Hurwitz, is called Silence. And we've heard that after I come back to work, after my first panic attack, that I start to notice there are many people not speaking to me. At the end of the last episode of the first season, there was a strange call with management where 
no one from management is acknowledging what's happened or asking me if I need any help. And I want to talk about, I think our last conversation was about the power of words. I want to talk about the power of silence. And what I can tell you in my experience that that silence that I experienced at the good speed just really exacerbated the panic and anxiety that I was already experiencing it. I'd like to hear your thoughts about silence and when someone is experiencing a mental health crisis. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Silence. I mean, the silence speaks words. Right. Silence speaks volumes. I think about. I like that. Silence speaks words. It does. It does. It says so much. Yes. You know, think about anybody who is a theater goer has experienced silence in the theater and it can mean a million different things and it can be so powerful. Oof, I have chills just thinking about those times. Now, you know, silence in response to somebody having somebody suffering, somebody having a mental health crisis re-traumatizes the person, re-harms the person, because when you have had harm by another person, the kind of silence that minimizes or denies that harm is going over that same wound. It's a human not recognizing the human on the other side. Oh, let's say that again. It is a human not recognizing the hum- a yeah. human on the other side. Yeah. It's a dehumanization. Yes, yes. And which is what, you know, when somebody, when one person harms another person, you know, abuses another person, that is dehumanizing. That, that is the, that is the crux of the trauma is that that person cannot be seeing you as a human in order to harm you. And you, you have just experienced not only the physical harm of it, but the emotional harm of not being seen as human, of being dehumanized. And it's really negatively powerful. Now, silence, silence can be healing. In the work that I do, sometimes the silence is bearing witness and just being present. That feels different, right? If you went up to somebody and said, I am hurting, you know, this person hurt me and didn't acknowledge it. And now the system is supporting him and I am suffering. And that person was present with you and you saw in their nonverbal communication, their eyes, their facial expression, you know, maybe they reached out and held your hand, that they were there and present with you. That is that can be so meaningful and healing. They don't even have to say a word. But somebody stands there and turns their back and they know that you're suffering. They probably, you know, something has changed. You know that they know. And they're turning their back to you. That is the opposite of humanizing and healing. That is punching you in the wound. Yeah. And there's so many messages in the silence, I think you bring up a good point, is the silence that I didn't really, I'm not really suffering, or we're ignoring what caused the suffering. But the other element I recall, it wasn't just the messages, it was the sense of being utterly alone Hmm. in my suffering Mm -hmm. that really had an effect on me. And when your mind is already experiencing the panic, now you've added more fuel to the loops. Yes. Yeah. That your mind plays. Yeah. Yeah. I think you put that very well. It's a very lonely experience, you know. Even one person, one person reaching out and acknowledging and connecting can make a world of difference. But to be in your workplace and to walk in and it's like everybody is there, but their backs are turned to you as you're walking in and it stays that way, it's very isolating and it exacerbates the anxiety that you're already feeling. And 
perhaps there's another component to this is that maybe some of the silence from people is not necessarily that they have bad motives, but it's too uncomfortable for them. That it's easier to for me to not acknowledge it because it's going to make me feel uncomfortable. 100%. You know, it's that idea of, I don't want to think about that this could happen to me. It's self-protective. Still has a harmful impact, but it's not necessarily malicious. You know, some people, maybe they've formed their opinion about you and they, you know, didn't, you know, they had some opinion that made them not want to interact with you. And it's a little more malicious in that way. And then other people's just like, I don't want to get involved in this. I don't want to get, you know, lose this job. Yeah. I don't want to think this could happen to me. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's very easy in the theater industry that when someone is suffering, but there's also another component that, oh, there's this controversy going on with this person. So I don't want to be anywhere near that. So the solution is I will not even acknowledge the person is suffering. And we have to be better than that. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's, I think of it in terms of the capitalist structure that there is this self-protective motive of, you know, I want to keep this job. And if I make waves, then the system is going to see me as a problem. The system will get rid of you. They'll just replace me. You know, there is some truth to that. But first of all, treating somebody humanely is not controversial. You being abused in that way and and, and mistreated is not a controversy. But the system crafted that narrative with their words, right? And so people go into self-protective mode because they don't want to risk their sense of security. But if we stand for nothing, what will we fall for? Let's look at the more positive approach to this. Let's think of those people who perhaps didn't have anything malicious in mind, but avoided interacting because they didn't know what to say. What is the easiest thing to just reach out to someone who is suffering so they don't feel alone? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I hear from people, they'll say, I haven't said anything because I don't know what to say. I hear that from people. And, you know, I'll remind people that, yes, there are some things that you could say that probably would be harmful, but really, like, if you're just aware of kind of those obvious landmines, you know, blaming the victim (laughs) or trying to placate, there's almost nothing wrong you can say. And so just acknowledging is so powerful and just being present. So just saying, I know you've been, you've been hurting and I'm so sorry. Oh, that's just a humane response to, to a human experience. That alone, those few words can make all the difference. Those are great words. Thank you, Dr. Hurwitz, for being with us. You've given us a lot to think about. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Elisa Hurwitz is a clinical psychologist in group private practice in New Hampshire, specializing in the autism spectrum and gender identity. She also applies her professional knowledge to consult with theater companies, conduct post-show talkbacks, and interview Broadway actors. You can follow her at drdrama.com and on Instagram at the drdrama. that's T-H-E-D-R drama. Remember, this podcast should not be considered a substitute for medical advice. So if you are experiencing any medical or mental health issues, please seek the advice of a medical or mental health professional. Hey, Stage Combat listeners, Sean Hayden here. Thank you for continuing this story with us in our season two premiere of Stage Combat, A Mental Health Story. Be sure to join us for episode two. Episode two is a special double episode 
The first is called The Memo, and the second episode is called File, S. Hayden. We will be checking in with Dr. Elisa Hurwitz and her post-show talkback to talk about depersonalization episodes. Stage Combat, a mental health story, is a production of Haywood Productions, LLC. Our consulting producer is Ian Southwood of Southwood Productions, LLC. This episode was recorded and edited by the amazing Andrew Lynn, and it was directed and read by me, Sean Hayden. Follow us on Facebook, TikTok, at Stage Combat the Podcast, and on Instagram at Stage Combat the Podcast IG. Be sure to rate, review, and follow us at your podcast platform. And did you know you can also listen to Stage Combat episodes online? You can do that at stagecombatthepodcast.com, and you can also sign up for the Stage Combat newsletter. We would love to hear from you. Your comments, questions, maybe you would like to share your own experience. Email us at stagecombatthepodcast at gmail.com. And just a self-care note, these season two episodes are intense, so please be sure that you're taking care of yourself as you listen to them. I hope today and every day brings you an opportunity to claim your story. I'll meet you over at episode two. If you or someone you know is in crisis or contemplating self-harm, you can reach out to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by simply dialing or texting 988. That's 988. Mental health assistance is also available through the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. You can call the helpline at 1-800-950-6264 or text HELPLINE to 62640. That's 1-800-950-6264 or by text to 62640.